0: Okay, as you can see in your bulletin, this is the fourth part of the Lord's Supper. I've decided to break out and teach on the Lord's Supper. Some things I wasn't planning on teaching, um, which is why there's going to be five parts. I thought there would be four, but we're going to have one more week next week about communion and the history of communion and doctrine. Last week, we talked about approaching the Lord's table with reverence and holiness. Remember that? Which is the opposite of the way the Corinthians were approaching the supper in our text, 1 Corinthians 11. We also saw that indeed, to be holy, to have a reverential heart, and to bear much fruit, we need to be walking with Jesus We need to abide in him and stay and remain in him. And we saw that the key to abiding in him is what? Keeping his commandments, remember? Obedience. What a novel idea. Obedience. Keeping his commandments begins first and foremost with coming to know exactly what his commandments are. And we come to know what those commandments are by being in the word every day. Remember, we talked about that. Now, that might sound too simplistic to some, but believe me, it's not. I know I say things like this all the time. They're true. They bear repeating. I know people who have been saved, quote unquote, saved 35 years, who Couldn't name three of the Lord's commandments in the Gospels. So I beg you to do what I begged you to do last week. One more time, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Do you not realize, Paul says, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail The test. Paul would not have warned the Corinthians of such if everything was fat and dumb and peachy keen in Corinth. Paul was gravely concerned because the Corinthians were producing the wrong fruit. Read the Gospels so that you can plainly see Christ's commands and incorporate them into your life. If you do, there will be seasons of your life when obeying these commandments becomes muscle memory of sorts, okay? You'll just automatically do it because it's the way you've always done it. Then your walk with the Lord will be more consistent and You'll know better what he expects of you. It'll be more plain to you if you are in the Word and if you're especially reading the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you know what the Lord expects from you and you do it, he will be more likely to use you in the body of Christ by whichever gifts or talents. has equipped you with for the body of Christ and that church is what fosters unity within the body and that's what we want we don't we don't want to approach the Lord's Supper when we have been unrepentant about not obeying our Lord's commands The types of factions and schisms and backbiting that is exemplified for us by the Corinthians is what we don't want to do as Christians. All right, that's our our review, moving on. Last week I told you that we would examine the history of the Lord's Supper because a history Of the supper will show us how we got where we are today in regard to how we recognize and commemorate the Eucharist the way that we do I know that was a run-on sentence but have mercy on me why is this so important it's important because there are so many Christians I should say so many other Christians practicing the supper differently than we do or than we are. In fact, some of them practice it very differently than we do, as we'll see in a moment. And we have to ask ourselves, who's right in their practice of the Lord's Supper? If you've got three different theories three different doctrines, three different ideologies about the Lord's Supper, which we'll go over this week and next. Um, how do you know which way is the right way? They can't all be right. Some Christians practice um, transubstantiation, which I'll explain. For those of you that don't know what that is, some practice consubstantiation, which we'll talk about next week, and some practice commemoration of the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about today and next week. What makes each way different, folks? Got to know. How did these Eucharistic practices evolve over 2,000 years, and what do Christians believe today? concerning the Lord's Supper. Is it the same thing that was believed 2,000 years ago? This morning, I want to examine transubstantiation and more specifically, um, what do Roman Catholics believe in regard to the Eucharist? And like I said, we'll talk about other denominations and we'll talk about other forms of celebrating the Lord's Supper as we go on Most of that will be next week. So what do Catholics believe? What do Lutherans believe? Who are pretty much the closest to Catholics in the Eastern Orthodox. What do Reformed Protestants believe about the Supper? Abiding Grace Church. We not only need to understand these things for ourselves and our loved ones, but also for everyone else we come in contact with who, like some of you sitting here this morning, were never taught these things. I was never taught these things. I went to a Catholic grade school for eight years. I was never taught transubstantiation. What it meant, why they did it. I mean, I took all the CCD classes and just was never informed of that, those things. When you lead someone to the Lord and they ask about the Lord's Supper, which they eventually will. You've got an obligation, Christian, as to be able to explain to them what you believe and why you believe it. You have to be able to explain to them why you practice, what you practice, and how you go to the celebration of the supper with reverence and holiness and assurance that you're doing it the right way. Now, I repeatedly call it, and I'll continue to call it a practice, on purpose, because that's what it is. It is a practice of ours each week to partake of the Lord's Supper in a certain way. But like I said last week, this practice also an act of worship. So with that said, the question then arises Are you worshiping God correctly when you partake of communion or are you wrongly worshiping the Lord when you partake of communion? The worship aspect of the supper will cause you, should cause you, to begin to see why this is so important. Do you see the connection? Worship in the supper. Jesus said to the woman at the well, John 4, verse 22 and 24. You worship what you don't know. That's a pretty strong statement for Jesus to say to this woman. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Your worship. You got to have a knowledge of who you're worshiping. Again, Jesus said to her, you worship what you don't know. On Mars Hill, in Acts 17, Paul told the philosophers, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Think about that for a minute. Very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, quote-unquote, to an unknown God. Therefore, this is Paul. Term of conclusion, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is still true today. People worship what they do not know. And people worship in ignorance because they simply don't understand the importance of knowledge in their Christian walk. I'm not referring to National Geographic knowledge. I'm, referring, I'm not referring to pseudo-knowledge that comes from someone who claims to be spiritual. Well, you're, are you a Christian? Well, no, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. They have no idea what a Christian is. Talking about biblical knowledge, folks. I'm talking about biblical doctrine. As I hope to show in a minute, your knowledge must be correct in order to worship the Lord correctly in the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper. Proverbs 1825. I'm sorry, 1815. 15, if you're writing it down. We read: an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge psalm 119 verse 66 the psalmist says he prays teach me good judgment and knowledge for i believe in your commandments is that you that which i just read are you prudently going about the business of acquiring biblical and doctrinal knowledge or is this you that paul is describing in romans chapter 10 verse 2 where he says for i testify about them that they have a zeal for god but not in accordance with knowledge he is speaking speaking here of the nation of israel okay but this applies to everyone, every Christian, because the same sentiment is repeated many, many other times in the Bible. And what I want you to see this morning is that this knowledge that Jesus and Paul speak of isn't void of our subject matter this morning. Instead, it is the key to our subject matter this morning. You must have a biblical knowledge of the Lord's Supper, and it must prove correct when held in the light of Scripture. We measure everything according to Scripture, or you are not worshiping in spirit and truth when you come to the table. If you don't have that biblical knowledge of the Supper, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, if you don't understand it, you don't get it, that's not good. We've got to know the truth. And we have to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. You might be thinking, you know, well, Mike, you know, must is a pretty strong word. You must. I mean, you're saying that I must have a correct biblical view of the supper or it will negatively affect my worship and my practice of the supper. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now I'm going to prove it to you. If you are, again, back to transubstantiation, if you are Roman Catholic and you hear the teaching of transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholic Church claims to not only be biblical, but they also claim that your adherence to it is a necessary practice of this sacrament in order for you to receive saving grace, although They only believe that you receive some saving grace through the sacrament. You receive other saving grace through other sacraments, okay? But adherence to it. It is necessary. It's a necessary practice of this sacrament in order for you to receive some of that saving grace that you need to get into heaven. Catholics believe that, okay? Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. This is very important. Write it down if you can because it'll help you. I wish I had a job. I don't have a chopper. Okay. The Roman Catholic teaching about salvation is faith. You have faith plus works equals justification. Okay. You've got faith in God. You add works to it. You add meritorious works to it. And then you're justified, saved, to get into heaven. The biblical doctrine is not faith plus works equals justification. The biblical doctrine is faith equals justification plus works. Faith equals justification plus works. Meaning, God initiates the faith, God takes out the heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh. God regenerates your heart, enables you to believe. Sola fide, faith alone is the gift God gives you to believe. He enables you to believe. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't believe on your own. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Okay, God does not accept your works unless you are in Christ. So the biblical doctrine is faith first from God who enables you to believe. Faith equals justification plus works, meaning I believe I'm justified, I'm saved, and that's why I'm going to do good works. I'm not doing good works to get to heaven. I'm not doing good works for merit. I'm doing good works because I'm saved, I'm justified before Christ, justified by faith alone. So again, Roman Catholic teaching, faith plus works equals justification. Bible doctrine, faith equals justification plus works. And so first and foremost, if you're Catholic, you not only have to keep the sacrament of the Eucharist, but you also have to do the other six sacraments besides Holy Communion. And then you have to do, this is according to the Catholic Catechism, I will bring it in and show it to you. You have to do meritorious works and observances in order to have a chance at saving grace. How many works do you have to do? You're like the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to my house. How many doors you got to knock on, I ask them, to get into heaven? Okay? Now, you seasoned Protestants out there are well aware that the Bible does not teach salvation by works and grace. The Bible does not teach transubstantiation when it comes to the Lord's Supper which I realize I haven't defined yet. We'll get there in a minute. Therefore, this so-called biblical knowledge and doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is erroneous. It's flawed. Let's take a look at why this view of the Lord's Supper is unbiblical. I picked Roman Catholicism first, not because I'm picking on Roman Catholics. I picked them first because they're the largest Christian Christian denomination in the world at 1.36 billion parishioners how do they practice the lord's supper all those people how do they practice it well as i said they solely and unequivocally believe and practice what is called transubstantiation according to this belief listen carefully According to this belief, during the consecration of the Eucharist by the priest, it is believed by the parishioner that the substance of the bread and wine are changed, completely changed into the actual substance of the body and blood of Christ while the outward appearances of the bread and wine remain unchanged. The change is considered to be a metaphysical transformation and it emphasizes the mysterious and miraculous nature of the sacrament. The bread and the wine are believed to become the real presence, that's a capital R and a capital P, real presence, of Christ's actual flesh and blood. Now this word transubstantiation came into being very late in the 11th century and wasn't picked up by Roman Catholics as a doctrine until the 12th century. In Latin, this word means, transubstantiation means, change of one substance to another the changing of one substance to another. They believe that when the priest, saying the Mass, as I said, prays the prayer of consecration over the bread and wine, that the bread, changed, the bread is changed into Christ's flesh and the wine is changed into Christ's blood. According to Catholic doctrine, during the celebration of the Mass... The priest, officially, by Roman Catholic rule, is acting what they call persona Christi. He's acting as the person or vicar of Christ. He's acting in place of Jesus at that altar, in that mass. Okay? The bread undergoes a change in substance the wine undergoes a change in substance and becomes Christ's flesh and Christ's actual blood. Transubstantiation teaches that while the appearances of the bread and wine remain unchanged, the bread and wine become, they become in substance the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. This transformation is considered profound. It's considered to be a profound mystery among Catholics and the consecrated elements, the blessed elements, are then worshipped. The bread is worshipped. Eucharistic adoration we'll talk more about. The bread is worshipped and received by the faithful as the real body and blood presence of Christ in the Eucharist. This is why the Catholic catechism teaches that the Mass is a bloody sacrifice. They call it the bloody sacrifice. To them, there is a reenactment of the bloody, listen, this is very important, there is a reenactment of the bloody sacrifice of Christ on the altar every time Mass is said. So Mass is being said all over the world right now, many different countries, and each priest is representing Christ as a sacrifice on the altar to be sacrificed again and again and again for the forgiveness of your sins. And not only yours, but it's official Catholic doctrine that they believe that it also enables people who are already dead to have meritorious sins removed from their lives that they lived here on earth, especially if they're in purgatory and they're trying to get out of purgatory to go to heaven, whole other sermon. To them, there's a reenactment of the bloody sacrifice of Christ on the altar every time the mass is said. They believe that this bloody sacrifice that the priest has conjured up by way of his own consecrated incantation they believe it's Christ they believe that they are representing Christ as our sacrifice each time sadly they also believe that this bloody sacrifice on the altar at mass has the power to not only expiate the sins of the people present but like i said they believe it also can expiate the sins of the dead Hence, masses for the dead. How many of you ever bought a mass for the dead, purchased a mass for the dead? Nobody. Okay. A lot of bad Catholics in here. <laughs> we always purchase masses for the dead. Anyway, Scripture doesn't teach this, is my point. Okay. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Here we go. You Ready? Hebrews 10:10, 10, 10. "By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. once Jesus is sacrificed. To say that you sacrifice him over and over and over again on that altar, every time Mass is said is blasphemy. And it's heretical. The once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice suggests that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration, a remembrance, rather than a reenactment of that sacrifice over and over again to the tenth power for every Catholic around the world. How about Hebrews 7 26 and 27? Listen carefully, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Who's the high priest? Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily, does not need daily, okay? Like those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, the priest offered for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself as the final, sinless, atoning Lamb of God sacrifice for our sins. Once. Verse 22, still in Hebrews 7, I think. Yeah, okay. According to the law. Mm. When they almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness therefore, term of conclusion, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves will better with better sacrifices than these verse 24For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself listen now to appear this is jesus in heaven now to appear in the presence of god the father for us okay he's in heaven interceding for us he's not on various altars around the world wherever a priest says mass near you okay verse 25 nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26, otherwise he would would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, the author of Hebrews says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered, he says it again, folks, I'm not making this up, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him church yikes jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary once for all with his blood his redemptive work is complete his redemptive work is finished it's over why in the world then Does the Roman Catholic Church believe that they can evoke Christ with a priestly prayer of consecration to sacrifice him again and again and again? Again, in the catechism. We must go to the Lord's table with the right and true biblical knowledge. When we get into a conversation with a Catholic about this subject, we must be loving, gentle, and sincere. It's the only way to be, especially when it comes to Bible doctrine. But we must also be bold. Why? Because people's eternal destinies are at stake. Do you understand? If you've got the wrong knowledge, You've got the wrong destination. Okay? This isn't a game. It's very serious. We have to always be ready. We have to obtain and retain the knowledge that's necessary from the scriptures so that we can obey Paul when he says to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Would you like to impress a Catholic? Walk them through Hebrews, just Hebrews, and walk them through it in their own Catholic Bible. because it's no different than ours, the book of Hebrews, Catholic Bible, Protestant Bible, same thing. Show them these scriptures that we have gone over this morning that were written just for them. Show them that Jesus is our great, listen, Jesus is our great high priest, folks. Not the priest at the altar in the mass. There's only one great high priest. There are no vicars of Christ. That's also blasphemy. I had a guy call me, I had a pastor call me little Jesus one time. I said, don't you ever call me that again? Show them that Jesus is a great high priest and that there is no need for a priest among men to mediate between God and man. That's what this is about, folks. In Roman Catholic doctrine, it is believed that the priest stands in Christ's place and ministers to you in place of Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Next week, we're going to go over the second um, view on the Eucharist, which will be consubstantiation, as I said, then we 'll go over uh, commemoration, which is what we believe and do, but many many most Protestants do um, and I also want to talk next week. I, I said I was going to do it this week, but didn 't get to it i 'm um, going to talk about the history of of the Eucharist in the early church and how it evolved. Um, But this morning, I just wanted you to see what transubstantiation is, changing of substance, blood and wine, um, bread and Christ's flesh. Uh, And I wanted to see you, I wanted you to see that there's only one mediator between God and man. And that's quite crucial to all Christian doctrine. It's the foundation that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. There no, longer needs, there no longer remains a sacrifice. There no longer remains a priest sacrificing. The blood of bulls and goats can't do anything, can't forgive sin. Only Christ's blood spilled, Christ's body broken, hanging on that cross. Dying, being raised from the dead, and ascending into heaven. That's the only thing that saves you. That knowledge and that belief, that faith that comes through Christ. Let's pray.